0: The following program includes descriptions of graphic and sexually explicit violence. This show may not be suitable for those affected by such descriptions or for young listeners. Parental discretion is advised.
1: Previously on Stranglers.
2: We had the
3: DeSalvo pretty well tied up.
1: Three years after the investigation began, Detective Phil Natalie was closing in on a suspect.
3: And we found out that he was in the areas of the murder at the time. These murders were, were uh, committed.
1: Albert DeSalvo was being held at Bridgewater State Hospital, where he met fellow inmate George Nasser. DeSalvo confessed that he was the Boston Strangler and told Nasser he wanted to sell his story.
3: He asked me who would be a good attorney for him. Then I had a high profile attorney at the time, F. Lee Bailey, so
2: that made it a, he felt a good fit.
1: Effley Bailey believed DeSalvo was the strangler, and within a matter of days, so did the police.
3: They called the police commissioner out of a black-tie dinner, and they said, Commissioner, this guy looks far better than anyone we've looked at in this entire investigation.
1: The press got hold of the story. Suddenly, all eyes were on Bridgewater. And the investigators waited for their chance to interrogate the self-identified Boston Strangler. From Stitcher and Northern Light Productions, in partnership with Investigation Discovery, this is Stranglers. I'm Portland Helmick. Guys,
2: everybody ready? This is New England. New England. New, New England.
1: Anna Either or the... Miss Jane Sullivan, 67, was found. They were
2: strangled, strangled, usually with a piece of their own clothing.
1: They became sisters in
4: death. Articles of silk or satin.
2: He was mercurial.
3: He was stressed. He was an egoist. There's more than one way to skin a cat.
1: Episode 8 Confessions.
2: A Narshaar man has confessed that he is the so-called phantom strangler, responsible for the heinous sex murder of 13 greater Boston women during an 18-month...
1: In March of 1965, news broke that an inmate at Bridgewater State Hospital had confessed to being the Boston Strangler. The inmate, though not named in the article, was Albert DeSalvo. The head of the task force, John Bottomley, was skeptical. Actually, he was more than skeptical.
2: Bottomly said that he had absolutely no interest in Albert as a suspect. He said, of all the suspects that we've considered, Albert is the last.
1: This is George McGrath talking to reporter Gerald Frank. In proceedings involving someone who may not be mentally competent, a court may appoint a legal guardian. George McGrath was DeSalvo's guardian at Bridgewater State Hospital.
2: And he said, I'm not interested in him. uh, uh, The whole thing is phony.
1: The whole thing was phony. Bottomley had several reasons to doubt DeSalvo. To begin with, the case built by Fildy Natale and his team was still just circumstantial. No concrete, physical evidence had yet been found that tied DeSalvo to any of the crime scenes. Also, the investigation had screened upward of 3,500 suspects, and the attorney general's office had gone on record as being skeptical of any confessions coming out of a mental hospital. What's more, the medical director at Bridgewater, Dr. Ames Roby, flat-out told Bottomley, this guy's lying.
5: In one very strong conclusion that Dr. Roby came to was that Albert Sasalva was one of the bigger con men in human history. Author Susan Kelly. And this impulse that he had to brag and to present himself as somehow larger than life was one of the factors that made his confession dubious. To Roby, de was someone who, if he could not be famous for a good reason, would be famous for being a monster, because fame was what counted.
1: The task force was focusing on nine other lead suspects, each of which Bottomley believed was a more likely strangler than DeSalvo. But Detective Natale was certain, and the press wasn't about to let up. So Bottomley had to do something if he wanted to cross this mental patient off the list. He went back to DeSalvo's guardian, George McGrath.
2: He said, look, George, this is it. If you let me talk to him, it'll be just sharp and sweet." Get it over. You have to trust him, we you wouldn't do this. So we talk, I talked to Lee. Okay, well let's do.
1: McGrath coordinated with Effley Bailey, who said sure, Bottomley could speak with his client, but only on one condition. Any confession DeSalvo might make could not be admissible as evidence in court. I asked Effley Bailey about the deal. So you made this deal. And I can understand why you might not have wanted him to go to trial, but why would the attorney general's office ever agree to that?
3: Because they had no choice. They wanted to clear up uh, the mysteries. No one had ever been arrested for any of the stranglings, but lives had been ruined. They chose the greater good because they wanted to close these files, too.
1: On July 26, 1965, John Bottomley went to meet with Albert DeSalvo. Joining him were George McGrath, the Guardian, Detective Phil DiNatale, DeSalvo's lawyer, F. Lee Bailey, along with the head of Boston Police Homicide, John Donovan. They all packed into two cars and drove south from the city to Bridgewater. When they got there, Bottomley and McGrath went by themselves into a small room to meet DeSalvo. The others waited outside. McGrath began by introducing Bottomley to DeSalvo.
2: And I said, you can say whatever you want to Mr. Bottomley. I'll be here to protect you if there's any improper questions and so on. But I said, you know, the reason for this is to determine, for Mr. Bottomley to determine whether or not you are sufficiently a suspect for him to continue this investigation. He understood it all. I said, fine. Okay, let's go.
1: There's no record of what DeSalvo said. Bottomley hadn't thought to bring a tape recorder. But according to McGrath, Bottomley began by saying, Albert, I don't think you did these things. I don't believe it. But I'm here to listen. Let's talk about them. DeSalvo agreed. And Bottomley brought out a binder of photos of women. Some of the women in the photos had been killed by the strangler. Others were victims of unrelated crimes.
2: now, Albert, uh, you look through the pictures. And you point out anyone. And I said, don't point out anybody. If you don't recognize anybody, you don't point out anyone. He said, all right, now let's look at these. So I will look at this. Yeah, sure, that's so-and-so. So. So take-
1: George McGrath watched DeSalvo flip through the pages of photos. One by one, he picked out the strangler victims. McGrath had kept himself deliberately ignorant of specific details of the case so that he might better act as DeSalvo's unbiased guardian. But he says DeSalvo seemed driven to tell his story completely and clearly.
2: He's so particular about the precise details that he couldn't be diverted. He made sure that the truth was known. He made sure that, the, that, that you knew the story. He never wavered.
1: DeSalvo's detailed answers inspired other questions from Bottomley, and more answers. What was supposed to be a 20-minute visit stretched to five and a half hours. When the interview was over, McGrath and Bottomley put out their cigarettes and stood up. They walked quietly through the unrelenting clamor of Bridgewater Hospital and out into the parking lot.
2: We left there and we went down to the Red Coach Grill and we had dinner.
1: The two men sat across from each other at dinner.
2: The thing that impressed me was Bottomley's me, expression. Here was a man that was so dead wrong and knew it. He knew it. Just the expression. I think he had no conception of what he was, was going to face down. This was, to me, the most dramatic thing of the whole thing.
1: Bottomley was shaken. DeSalvo's words that day had brought him around to Fildi Natali's view. DeSalvo was the most likely suspect for the stranglings. But now Bottomley had a problem. There was no taking back the agreement he'd struck with Bailey. DeSalvo's confessions, from that day and the days to come, could never be used in court. And yet Bottomley would have to go back and get more from DeSalvo. Bottomley reasoned any confessions he gathered could be corroborated later through detective work. Bottomley also believed that his job leading the task force wasn't just to put a suspect on trial, but ultimately to catch the strangler and end the murders. If this man sitting in a hospital for the criminally insane was the killer, Bottomley and the city of Boston needed to be absolutely certain. On August 11th, 1965, Bottomley met with DeSalvo again.
2: Bottomley sat on one side of the table, Albert on the other, and I sat on the side of the table. She Just the table. a table. Did the tape record between them? Uh, yeah.
1: This time, the confessions would all be recorded. You're saying that the
4: camera came well, on it. a light, mint, green, green shelf? Yes.
1: Those tapes still exist, and we'll hear some of them. But they've deteriorated over time. We've had actors recreate some of the more difficult to follow sections. All right, and I'll say, I'll say one, one, one more thing.
6: thing. Okay. This brown Down camera that I saw. Uh, it's. Uh, Rolleiflex. That's the word. Rolleiflex. And it was on the right. Uh, right corner. I think it was almost on the top shelf where.
0: <laughs> now for the tape. Albert DeSalvo is now looking at a loosely folder of photographs of the faces of women, and he is now going to review it. OK.:
1: Once again, Bottomley presented DeSalvo with photos of women to be sure he recognized the people he'd claimed to have murdered.:
6: This is from uh, uh, Lynn. Mrs. Blake. Mrs. Blake.
0: What's the number on that?: Six. Number six. Mrs. Blake from Lynn.
1: DeSalvo performed well. One after another, he identified the women correctly. Anna Slessers, Sophie Clark, Mary Sullivan. It was convincing, but it was also possible that DeSalvo had seen these women's pictures in the newspapers. But then, DeSalvo hesitated over one photo.
6: Now, this one here, it bothers me. It bothers you? Very much. I'm not sure, but it, it could be... Nina Nichols?
1: Nina Nichols was the only strangling victim whose photo had not appeared in the newspapers. Her family had refused to release it. So the picture in front of DeSalvo was from several years before she died, when Nina was in her late 50s or early 60s. DeSalvo tapped the photo.
6: She was frail and her hair was a lot grayer than it is here. Yeah, sure, this, this is her, okay, but she's a lot older. I never saw her. Well, I did. This one here.
1: At that point, the police had counted 11 victims of the Boston Strangler. DeSalvo correctly identified photos of every one of them. Coming up after the break, DeSalvo confesses to those 11 stranglings, plus two more and he recounts each one, down to the smallest details.
6: To the left would be a uh, kitchen. I see a sewing machine, uh, brown. Window, uh, with drapes. Very
1: now back to Stranglers. John Bottomley asked Albert DeSalvo to take him through the murders to describe how he committed each of the stranglings. He needed to see if DeSalvo's stories lined up with the evidence they'd collected. DeSalvo said that on June 14, 1962, he had the day off from work. He told Ermgard, his wife, he was going fishing. But instead, he drove into Boston.
6: You got to realize this, Mr. Bottomley. I just drove in and out of streets and ended up wherever I ended up.
1: According to DeSalvo, he parked his car near Gainsborough Street and took a stroll. In his pocket, he carried a heavy lead weight from his fishing kit. He chose a building at random, number 77. Walked up the stairs and stopped in front of apartment 3F, again, at random. Anna Slessers lived in 3F. DeSalvo recalled that he told Slessers he was a maintenance man sent by the super to do repairs. Slessers let him in.
6: To the left would be a kitchen, then the bathroom about 10 feet on. Uh, the light would be on. I see a sewing machine, uh, brown. A window uh, with drapes, very pretty bedroom set. Light tan, uh, a couch, uh, a tan record player with darker color, you know, dark uh, cocoa color knobs.
1: DeSalvo told Bottomley that Slessers led him through the apartment, showing him which things were broken or needed attention. DeSalvo said as Slessers turned and walked toward the bathroom, he attacked.
6: I hit her on the head with the lead weight.
1: Then, DeSalvo said, he pulled the sash of Slessers' bathrobe and tightened it around her neck.
6: Her blood was all over me on my jacket and shirt. So when I left, I grabbed a raincoat that was hanging in a cabinet and put it on.
1: DeSalvo said he left Slessor's building and on the way out, walked by a policeman.
6: Uh, But I went out, got into my car, and drove around until I came to an Army-Navy store.
1: Outside the store, sitting in the car, DeSalvo said he shredded Slessor's raincoat with his fishing knife. Then he cut up the bloody shirt. He wrapped the pieces in his jacket and tossed it in the back seat. DeSalvo recalled that he got out of the car and walked bare-chested into the Army Navy store to buy a new shirt. Apparently, the storekeeper thought nothing of it. DeSalvo said he dressed and drove to a marshy area. He took the bloody clothes and dropped them in the water, piece by piece. He made sure the current took it all away.
7: Albert said in the course of the interrogation that he had taken a raincoat out of the apartment and he had discarded it somewhere near the water in the Lynn Marsh area of Lynn, Massachusetts.
1: This is John DiNatale, who heard about the interrogations from his dad.
7: And not only did they go and walk like a mile and a half down through the, you know, the shoreline there, looking for it some three and a half years after the fact. That's how thorough they were. But then they called up the daughter and the son and said, describe your mother's raincoat. And according to my dad, Anna Lester's daughter said, well, I go one better. I've got it. My mother bought two of the exact same style, one for her, one for me. So off they go, they run, they go get the raincoat, they bring it back, they get some exemplars that are very similar.
1: In the interrogation room, Bottomley had placed the raincoat on a rack with other raincoats.
7: And Albert walks over and...
2: And he pulled one right up, without any hesitation. He said, this is the raincoat.
1: George McGrath, DeSalvo's legal guardian.
2: Bottomley said, well, you know, don't, don't be in too much of a hurry now. He said, this is the one. As it turned out, they told me later, that was exactly true. He picked the right ring cut out of this whole right.
1: DeSalvo described how a couple weeks after the murder of Anna Slessers, on the last Saturday in June, he told his wife he was headed out on a job.
6: Did you work on Saturdays? No, but I always told her I had a job to do here and there. That's how I got away. So your wife thought you were working? My wife assumed I was working. So you left your home about what
1: time... He drove instead to another apartment building, picked at random, 73 Newhall Street in Lynn, and strangled Helen Blake. He said he raped her, as he had Slessers. But DeSalvo told Bottomley that day he wasn't ready to go home yet after killing one woman. He said he kept driving around. He wound up at 1940 Commonwealth Avenue in Boston, the home of Nina Nichols. DeSalvo said he talked his way into Nichols' apartment, just as he had with Blake and with Slessers, and again attacked her from behind.
4: What happened to you when you grabbed her? I mean, what was going on in your mind? Do you remember
6: that? Uh, the the feeling I had?
4: Yeah.
6: Her back was turned to me. I only saw the back of her head. It's like, uh... It was all hot. It's like gonna blow your head off. It's like pressure right on you. You just had to do something. As soon as I saw the back of her head, right? Not not a face. Everything built up inside me. Before you know it, I put my arm around her, and that was it. Went on from there. For whatever happened through that time, I I can remember doing these things. As, As for the reason why I did them, I cannot give you no answer.
4: Mr. Bottomley, please. Long distance calling.
1: Bottomley did his best to understand what drove DeSalvo, to get at the psychology behind the murders.
4: Bottomley? Yes, go ahead. Hey, hello, John. Is Gerald Frank in New York. Yes, Gerald. How are you? I'm fine. I hope you don't mind my calling.
1: Later, he would tell Gerald Frank that he felt DeSalvo was being open with him, almost intimate.
4: The last time I saw him, he embarrasses me. He acts so glad to see me, you know, and almost reverential. You were going to project him to the world. For some reason, uh, our personalities reacted in such a way that he put more trust and confidence in me than anybody else around and uh, tells me things he never told anybody
1: else. Bottomley said he thought DeSalvo was starting to see him as a father figure, a person he could unburden himself to.
4: His mental situation is, is constantly changing in the sense he's becoming more and more normal. This burden of guilt is getting stronger and stronger. And I spoke to him uh, the other day, on my belief that there was a very good chance that a jury would... would uh, victim of these crimes. And uh, again, he reiterated, he was prepared to take that risk, that he simply couldn't live with this under these circumstances
1: uh, any longer,
4: That it had to be resolved and publicly.
1: Bottomley told Gerald Frank that DeSalvo seemed fragile, on the edge of falling apart mentally. So he tried to treat DeSalvo as gently as he could, while still trying to get the confessions in full.
4: All right, now, when did you ransack the apartment? After you were killed. We use this word, ransack.
1: Right? The tape recorder was rolling day after day as DeSalvo poured out information. And all of it needed to be vetted and verified. Every afternoon, Bottomley would hand over that day's recordings to detectives Andy Tooney and Filthy Natalie Here's Phil's son, John.
7: My dad. And Andy would take those tapes, and they took each murder individually, and they broke them down. And so they would say, okay, Albert says that uh, in Mary Sullivan's murder that she was wearing blue cut-off jean shorts, true or false? And they would say, okay, true. And then they would have a column. Where did the information come from? Was it in the newspapers? Was it in a crime scene photograph? Was it in an autopsy report? They wanted to be able to distinguish where Albert could have found that piece of information.
1: Okay, I've got these charts in front of me right now. So there's one chart for each victim. On the left are all of DeSalvo's statements broken into pieces that Dean Natale could test for accuracy. So this is... Analysis of statements made by Albert H. DeSalvo in the case of Nina Nichols. So he states that the victim wore glasses. And then there are these different columns. So is that statement true? Yes. Was that information in the newspaper? Yes. So he could have read about it in the newspaper. Was it in the local police report? No. Was it in a crime scene photo? Yes. Was it in the autopsy report? No. So the knowledge that she wore glasses was in the newspaper. It was in the crime scene photo. States that the victim was wearing stockings. And that statement was false. So he got that wrong. And that information was not in the newspaper, the police report, the crime scene photos, or the autopsy report. So he got that wrong. He didn't get everything right. Without any concrete evidence tying DeSalvo to the crime scenes... All the investigators were left with was his word. So Phil Di Natale knew the data analysis was essential. But that's not the work he wanted to be doing. The strangler was the biggest case of Phil's life, and he felt it. He wanted to be in that room, interrogating DeSalvo himself. John Di Natale remembers how angry his dad was about being shut out. Oh, God, you know.
7: I still think there's a hole. If I went back to the house I grew up in, you could still see the hole in the door that he punched his hand through. My mother put a calendar up over it for many, many years. But yeah, he was not happy camper about that at all. You know, this was like the culmination of everything that they'd been working
1: for. DeSalvo continued describing the murders, how he'd picked apartment buildings and victims at random. On August 19th, 1962, DeSalvo said he ended up at 7 Grove Street in Beacon Hill.
6: I rang about four different bells. Somebody buzzed the door. It opened. I went up the stairs. Whoever came to the door first, that was it.
1: Ida Erga came to her door.
6: When I get to the top of the stairs, she's on the landing, looking down over the iron railing, waiting for me. I told her I was going to do some work in the apartment but I could see she didn't trust me. She said, but I don't know who you are. She spoke in kind of an accent, Jewish type. She was heavy set, about 160 pounds, uh, white haired with streaks of black. And I said, if if you don't want it done, forget it. I'll just tell them you told me you don't want it done. And I started to walk down. She says, well, never mind. come on.
1: DeSalvo said he told Ida he had to check all the windows and he followed her into her bedroom. When she turned around, he put her in his chokehold.
6: She passed out fast. I saw purplish dark blood it came out of her right ear. Just uh, enough for me to see. But I, I strangled her first with my arm and then the pillowcase. You didn't have time to. Can you
0: specifically remember having intercourse with her? You're shaking your head, which means no.
6: I'm, I'm trying to be sure about everything I say. Well, you remember so much
1: here. Sometimes Bottomley pushed DeSalvo. He wanted to extract all the details he could from DeSalvo's memory, but he also wanted to figure out how reliable his memory was.
6: I would say yes, I... I... You don't sound very positive
0: to me. Are you saying you had intercourse with her because you think you did or because you remember
6: you did? I know I did.
1: There was one incident Bottomley had been able to independently verify, a near miss with the Strangler or so the police believed. It was reported by a woman named Marcella Luca. The incident took place on December 5th, 1962.
6: Yeah, I remember that day. It was supposed to be a work day, but December 5th is my uh, wedding anniversary, so I uh, took the day off.
1: DeSalvo said he left home and headed toward Boston's Back Bay. He parked on Huntington Avenue, walked over to building number 315, and knocked on a door. Marcella Luca answered. He said he was Thompson, and he was here to do the painting. He said I was pretty, and he started talking real funny. He talked about how tall I was and that I'd make a good model. I got very nervous and told him I'd have to ask my husband in the next room about the painting. He wasn't home, really, but I left the room as if he was. And when I came back, that man was gone. DeSalvo's version of the story closely matched Marcella Luca's. He said that after he left her apartment, he started to wander through the hallways, knocking on doors. My dearest Chuck, may this letter find the man I
6: love well.
1: DeSalvo said when he knocked on apartment 4C, Sophie Clark opened the door.
0: I was going to suggest that you get a phone,
3: but I guess you can do without it. I...
6: The door swung open to my left, and she presented herself to me. What did she look like? DeSalvo
1: said he tried to talk his way in, and at first she resisted.
6: She didn't want to let me in because her roommates weren't there, but they would be home shortly. She said they were taking a course uh, across the street in the YWCA, and she was waiting for him.
1: Then he used his fallback his line about being from a modeling agency.
6: I gave a fast talk. I, I told her I'd set her up in modeling. I'd give her from 20 to $30 an hour. Oh,
0: you're back to the measuring man technique.
6: Yes. Uh, I got into the apartment. She was very, very upset letting me in. She was upset? You got to look at her side, too. She didn't want to let me in, yet she still did. She seemed to be scared.
1: DeSalvo appeared to relish moments like this when the woman at her door thought to herself, is this guy going to harm me? And DeSalvo was thinking, I'm going to harm this woman, and she knows it. The moment where she let him in against her better judgment. Once he got inside Sophie Clark's apartment, DeSalvo said he told her to turn around so he could look at her figure.
6: That was it. I grabbed her around the neck with my right arm. She was very tall because she fell on top of me on the settee. My legs went around her legs. She didn't give me any struggle at all.
0: Sophie gave very little struggle.
1: Yes. Effley Bailey found DeSalvo's detailed recollections of the Sophie Clark murder particularly convincing.
3: They said, when Sophie Clark was killed, was there anything unusual about the scene when you left? And his answer was, yes.
6: After she was out, I went from that room to another room, and there were some cigarettes in there. Don't know if they were luckies or what,
1: they, they fell on the floor.
6: Why did they fall on the floor? Because I knocked them on the floor.
1: Oh, I see. At Sophie Clark's crime scene, police had found a pack of Marlboros on the floor next to a dresser. And there was another detail they had kept from the press.
6: She was, uh, she was menstruating, too. Uh, how do you know that? Because she had that, uh, that little elastic thing with these little metal hooks on it. And I, I took it off her. She was almost finished, and I, I threw it on the...
0: You're sure she was almost finished?
6: There was a very slight stain on it, and I threw it in the back of the chair. I recall this.
3: They're not the kind of things you would expect to be publicized, one because it was innocuous, and the other because it was offensive, and, uh, but he knew them.
1: Bottomley interviewed DeSalvo seven times over a two-month stretch. The murders had happened years before, And yet DeSalvo was able to relate in minute detail how he'd done them, what he'd said to each victim, where he'd had breakfast before a strangling, and where he'd strolled after. Here's Effley Bailey.
3: His detail was repeatedly, time after time, on the money. And sometimes he said, I'm not sure. But when he was sure, he was right. And that can only point in one direction. I have never met a human being, and I'm an expert on memory, and I teach it. I've never met a human being that could put that much innocuous detail into 13 episodes and come up with it without notes or anything to help his memory, just out of recall.
1: By the end of the questioning, Bottomley and DeSalvo seem to have developed a kind of rapport. Salvo even asked bottomly, what do people think of me?
6: What do you think your own theories, now that you've talked? Because you're pretty sharp, very sharp. People who are looking for him, the police, how do they feel towards this person? Toward you? Yeah, in other words, you got to know me a little better.
0: Well, I think you're tragic. It's a tragedy. I don't know any other way to put it. You killed people, and you don't know why. I don't know why. (laughs) You've been under investigation since November, so even before you decided to talk, I knew a lot about you. I knew about your family. I knew about your relations with your wife. I knew that your neighbors thought you were a fine family, that you were a wonderful man. You're a paradox. You're a contradiction.
1: No doubt, DeSalvo was a paradox and a tragic figure. But perhaps the greatest contradiction was in the telling of his story. In one breath, DeSalvo would rattle off a detail that only the strangler could know. But in the next, he'd get some really simple facts very wrong. After the break, DeSalvo's errors and other problems with the confessions... Back to Stranglers. When John Bottomley was done interviewing Albert DeSalvo, he'd recorded nearly 60 hours of confessions. Bottomley and many of his staff were astounded by the level of detail DeSalvo had provided. In 1966, Attorney General Edward Brooke would describe these confessions as, quote, corroborated in almost every detail. But today, with the benefit of hindsight, we can see DeSalvo's confessions have major problems. And they start with John Bottomley.
5: Bottomley's conduct of the interrogation of DeSalvo was very atypical.
1: Author Susan Kelly. He
5: asked leading questions. He provided answers to some questions. He showed DeSalvo the crime scene photographs in some cases before taking DeSalvo's confession to that particular crime, So it was not at all
1: an acceptable way to interrogate a suspect. Here's Brian Kavanaugh, son of NYPD detective Tom Kavanaugh.
3: He went into it, I dare to say, as a bull in a china shop, really not knowing what he was doing. You have to be very careful not to suggest the answers to questions. You want to make sure that the suspect himself is telling you the details. If you ask a question in which you say, what color was that robe, was it a blue robe? You've suggested the answer. And if you have a suspect who's looking either to please you or to con you, the suspect will take the words and parrot them back.
0: So after you had intercourse with her, you went into the kitchen. You got a knife, you tried to get in that chest? Yes. This is after intercourse or before? After. All right, and you bent over that chest, tried to pry it loose and the knife broke?
1: Yes. Everyone I talked to said a version of this, that Bottomley was in way over his head. Here's Bill Dugan, head of Boston PD's Cold Case Squad.
2: If my family member was dead, I wouldn't want somebody whose primary focus on the law has been civil or corporate or business law. I would want somebody whose primary focus has been criminal law and with a particular expertise in homicide investigation.
1: There's no question that an expert interrogator, like perhaps Phil DiNatale, would have conducted these conversations differently and maybe coaxed evidence from DeSalvo that Bottomley didn't. But there are other problems with these confessions too, ones that have little to do with Bottomley. Some of the details DeSalvo got wrong are so far from the truth that they're hard to explain. For example, in one case, a victim had been stabbed in addition to being strangled. DeSalvo said he had thrown the murder weapon into a swamp. In fact, police found the bloody knife sitting in the victim's kitchen sink. Also, the Army-Navy store, the one DeSalvo said he had walked into bare-chested after he killed Anna Slessers. Detectives couldn't find it. They looked all around the neighborhood DeSalvo had described. They checked Gainsborough Street to Huntington Avenue, from Mission Hill to Copley Square, all around. They interviewed other store owners. Nothing. The Army-Navy store seemed like a DeSalvo fantasy. But the most alarming details DeSalvo got wrong involved the sexual acts he claimed to have performed.
0: Now, you have tied the stocking around her neck. And what did you do next?
1: I had intercourse with her.
0: Did you take any precautions? According
1: to DeSalvo, he'd had intercourse with all five of the first victims, the older women. But that was inaccurate. The killer or killers had not had intercourse with those women. Their bodies had been raped with objects. John Bottomley knew DeSalvo got this wrong in his confession. But he also saw a man in front of him racked with guilt. Here's Bottomley talking to writer Gerald Frank. Well,
4: the last few times I've seen him, he's, he's broken down into tears quite readily. These things keep him awake at night, you know?
1: But DeSalvo had bragged about these murders to other inmates, without tears. What if the wretched character he was playing for Bottomley was an act? What if DeSalvo was confessing to murders he didn't commit? Dr. Roby, the head psychiatrist at Bridgewater, believed DeSalvo was capable of pulling off such a big lie. And he also believed DeSalvo was obsessed with becoming famous.
3: He has shown consistently a tremendous insecurity and a need to identify himself as a notorious
1: character.
5: You know, he was also convinced that he would not go to prison, but to a posh mental institution.
1: Here's Susan Kelly.
5: He had Johns Hopkins fixed in his mind for some reason, where he would be the object of study from, by doctors from all over the world. And, you know, if you're a narcissist who wants attention that badly, sure, receive world-famous doctors in your suite at Johns Hopkins.
1: Kelly says DeSalvo had another reason to confess to all the stranglings. It was the reason he'd found his way to F. Lee Bailey.
5: DeSalvo was also convinced that he could make a great deal of money from the sale of his life story to the movies, uh, to Life magazine, to Saturday Evening Post, to any number of publications that existed at the time, and that this money could be used for the support of his wife and son and daughter. He really dearly loved his family and wanted to look out for them. So at that point, uh, what did he have to lose? He was going to prison forever on the Green Man charges. Why not confess to being the strangler and making some money, giving it to his wife and children for their support?
1: Bailey says he discouraged his client from selling his story directly. But he also said there's more than one way to skin a cat. Mr. Bailey, we have a copy of a telegram that you sent to George Nasser after your first meeting with Albert DeSalvo. It's just a couple of paragraphs. And I'm going to read it to you and then ask you a question about it. So you wrote, Dear George, I am informed by an assistant to the Attorney General that as a result of the advice you gave in this case to an individual whom we know, that you are entitled to a reward of $110,000. I would assume if your motives are, as I understand them to be, that you would make very sure that a substantial portion of any funds which might come to you would benefit the family of the man with whom we are concerned. Talk to absolutely no one until I see you next and count yourself a winner so far. Very truly yours, Effley Bailey. Would the Strangler Task Force have actually given a $110,000 reward to Nasser?
3: No. Um, NASA. Had, so
1: why did you write that?
3: NASA had, uh, because Bottomley said it. That's not a measure of the likelihood it would happen. It's a measure of the fact that the guy didn't know what he was talking about. So I was simply passing on, and I think the telegram you quoted says uh, an assistant attorney general told me that you might be entitled to the reward. And uh,
1: As far as you know, did anybody ever receive that $110,000 reward?
3: Nobody ever got a nickel except that a book called The Boston Strangler was just about to come when the publicity about De Salvo began to percolate. And the author, Gerald Frank, who had a towering reputation and a big advance, came to me and said, look, I'm just terrified that this thing is going to unfold. Your guy turns out to be the guy. The cops tell me that he probably is. And somebody writes a book and mine dies on the vine because the sequel will mean a lot more than the original." And so if you could tell me that Albert won't publish anything or have another author publish anything for six to nine months, I'd be will- willing to give uh, DeSalvo 15% of my royalties. And uh, that deal was struck. And Gerald Frank remained good to his word for as long as his book was out there selling it. It sold very well.
1: Really? DeSalvo got 15% of the royalties? Yes. Yes. He did while he was in prison?
3: They went to legal fees and to his family, but he was certainly paid money, yes.
1: DeSalvo's family later sued Effley Bailey for money from Gerald Frank's book. They said they hadn't seen a penny of their 15%. Bailey eventually settled and the family received about $48,000. So you never, ever doubted that he was the Strangler?
3: I never had an opportunity to doubt it or affirm it. I did not attend the interrogations, as I told you, because I didn't want any suggestion that he was being fed anything by me during the course of his questioning.
1: Do you think anyone at the attorney general's office regretted making that deal with you after DeSalvo gave such a convincing confession? I I don't
3: think so. I think they felt they had no choice. Bear in mind, they are political figures who had to look to public approval to hold office or advance in office. And uh, uh, they thought the public would not forgive them for making such a decision and taking the matter out of the hands of the courts and the jury. And the average layman has very little appreciation for the niceties of confessions being admissible or not being admissible. The point is that the case developed in such a way there was no nexus between Albert and the Stranglings except for his own admissions and what they learned as a result of those admissions. Those are also barred from court use as the fruit of the poisonous tree.
1: Despite the deal with Bailey, despite the inaccuracies in the confessions, and despite the lack of physical evidence, John Bottomley told colleagues he still intended to bring DeSalvo to trial. The detectives would just have to build the case without the confessions, or find a way to get new admissible confessions. Bailey had said he might allow investigators to speak with DeSalvo again, if prosecutors vowed not to push for the death penalty. But Bottomley did not get that chance. Political disagreements with his boss, Attorney General Edward Brooke, led Bottomley to resign in April 1966. He would never work a criminal case again. Bottomley later told his son he felt he'd done his job the man he believed was the Boston Strangler was off the street. And the killings had stopped. Stranglers comes from Stitcher and Northern Light Productions in partnership with Investigation Discovery. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Susan Gray. And the show is produced by me, Portland Helmick, with Sharon Mashihi, Ben Shapiro, Peter Clowney, the Reverend John Delore, Kate Tibbets, and Taylor Dewicky. Special thanks to Ben Avishai, Levi Del Cavanor, and to the Harry Ransom Center Archives for access to the Gerald Frank Boston Strangler recordings. The actors who appear in this episode are
0: Robert Creighton, Charlie Thurston,
1: Denise Cormier, Jasmine Johnson, R. Ward Duffy, Thatcher Keats. Original scoring is by Allison Leighton Brown. Stranglers is produced with the assistance of John Di Natale of Di Natale Detective Agency in Boston. To learn more about Detective Phil Di Natale, his sons, John and Richard, and the world of private investigation, you can read John's memoir, The Family Business, Memoirs of a Boston Private Eye, available at www.familybusinessthebook.com or Amazon. To read more about Phil's investigation of the Strangler case and view the web series and documentary showcasing his files, visit www.strangleholdthemovie.com. You can find Stranglers through a lot of the great podcasting apps, including Stitcher. If you subscribe on iTunes, please take a minute to rate and review this podcast. It helps other listeners find the show. I'm Portland Helmick. Thanks for listening. Next time on Stranglers. Crowds gather outside the Cambridge courthouse.
3: People waited in line, hoping that someone would leave the courtroom and make a seat available.
1: Inside the courthouse, Albert DeSalvo is put on trial for his crimes as the green man. But his reputation as the Boston Strangler is the heart of the defense.
3: I want to show the guy's insane. That's my defense.
1: The insanity plea also involves an examination of DeSalvo's childhood. His
3: father once broke the mother's 10 fingers one by one, lining the five children up
1: and making them watch. That's next time on Stranglers.